know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we welcome Professor David Cannon back to the podcast. Professor Cannon was instrumental in kicking off our election 2020 series all the way back in January 2020 and was a frequent guest throughout the tumultuous election cycle. Professor Cannon was last with us the day before the November 3rd election to give us a preview of what to expect. Turns out he was right to tell us to, quote, keep an eye on Georgia, end quote. We think it's fair to say that nobody could have predicted how the days, weeks, and months after the election played out. Of course, we know that President Joe Biden won the election and has since been sworn in, but not without former President Trump refusing to concede the election and using the position of his office, Twitter feed, and a slurry of legal challenges to try and overturn the election. While the courts didn't buy Trump's arguments, plenty of his supporters in Congress and throughout the nation did. With this disinformation campaign culminating in an assault on the United States Capitol by pro-Trump rioters on January 6th, only after which would Trump acknowledge a new administration would take over. Since then, the House has voted to impeach the president for a second time, alleging that he incited the riot on the Capitol, and the argument is reportedly gaining steam among some prominent Republicans in the Senate, including Mitch McConnell. It's been a troubling and unsettling period in American politics, and we are grateful to talk to Professor Cannon about his thoughts and perspective on how our country will move forward. First things first, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Cannon. Good to be with you. Let's start with election week. We're thinking back a long ways. That was when we last talked that Monday before election night. Biden was declared the winner on November 7th, four days after the election, and it took an inordinate amount of time because of how long it took to count the mail-in ballots in several key states. Can you give us your thoughts, thinking back to those days after the election, of how the media was covering this weight that we were all experiencing? Because, you know, we talked about it for months and months beforehand that we might not know the results. We talked about it and talked about it and media talked about it. So how do you think that the media actually executed it. Well, first of all, that seems like that was about five years ago. <laughs> it was two, two months ago. It's just crazy that that was yeah, just two months ago. But I think the media actually did a pretty good job of covering the election after it happened. That, As you noted, they did warn everyone that we would not know the winner on Wednesday morning, that it would take some time. And it was because of the record number of people voting by mail. We had two-thirds of the electorate did not vote on election day. They either voted in person before election day or voted by mail. And that's like double what we'd ever had before in American history. You combine that with the fact that we had a record turnout too, the highest turnout in a hundred years in a presidential election. So those two things just you know overwhelmed the, the voting system. And, and given how many people voted and the different ways in which people were voting, I thought the, the election in terms of just the mechanics of it actually went amazingly well. And again, I think the media did a, a good job of reporting the results as they came in 
and not doing things like calling in a, a state too early and having to switch the way we saw like in Florida in 2000, where the you know networks went back and forth on that like two or three times in those first 24 hours in terms of you know who won that state. So they avoided that problem of they, you know, you had the one early call of Arizona by Fox, which really, you know, annoyed the the Trump people. Turns out they were right. I mean, Arizona came in, you know, barely for Joe Biden by a little over 10,000 votes, but they called that one pretty early and they stuck with it and, and they were right. But that was the only really controversial call, I think, in terms of calling a state, you know, when it was still pretty early in, in the game. And they, again, played it pretty conservatively, I think, by not calling it until Saturday, that, you know, that it was pretty clear by about Thursday night, I would say, it looked you know, pretty clear that Biden was going to win. But, you know, as of like Wednesday, I, I went back and looked at my slides from a, a talk I gave for the Madison Rotary Club uh, at noon on Wednesday. And we knew when we you know, signed up for that, that like probably wouldn't know who the, the winner was. But in that talk, at that point, I made the point that if the election ended right then at noon on Wednesday, Joe Biden would have won by 270 to 268 electoral votes. That's how things stood. To that point, uh, Pennsylvania and Georgia still had not flipped for Biden. So it would, would have been like super close, but Biden already was ahead by you know, noon on Wednesday. Yeah, absolutely. Some commentators, and you know, we can take their words with a grain of salt, but some commentators have argued that it was important, like extremely important that Biden win by quote unquote so much. You know, he had a pretty sizable electoral college vote lead. And some people are saying that that is important because of like the legitimacy of the win, especially in light of some of the baseless claims that former President Trump made in the past. Can you give us your thoughts about what commentators say about that? Yeah. So one thing about the margin of victory in in two senses, it was a very solid win. You know, not a landslide, but a good solid win. Um, and that is the the number of popular votes that Joe Biden won by. That it's you know, over seven million votes that Joe Biden won by. So both by the popular vote margin nationally, over seven million votes, and by the electoral college margin of three hundred six to two thirty two, which was exactly the margin that Trump won by in twenty sixteen. You know, both of those were good solid wins, and the you know a lot of the pundits were saying that you know Biden needed a strong win to make it less likely that Trump would be able to make these claims about the election being stolen. Now, while it's true that Biden's win was a really strong, solid win by both of those measures, there's a, another way, though, of looking at the, uh, the outcome of this election, which was super close, actually really close, closer than, than 2016, which was also quite close. And that is, if you look at the results from those three closest states, Wisconsin, Arizona and Georgia, the total of the popular vote margin in those three states for Joe Biden was just under 43,000 votes. So if 43,000 votes had flipped you know, in those three states, you actually end up with a 269 to 269 tie in the Electoral College, which means that Donald Trump would have won because the election would have been thrown to the House of Representatives at that point. Each state gets one vote. Republicans controlled more states than Democrats. Donald Trump would have been president with a 269-269 tie uh, with just under 43,000 votes flipping. So 
while Joe Biden won by more than 7 million nationally, the because of the Electoral College being so close in those three states, uh, we actually had the margin being quite small. And that's why I think that you you saw the, the Trump campaign, you know, pushing so hard in Arizona, in Georgia, in Michigan, in you know, courts all around the country, trying to overturn the result of, of the election. Well, now that we've opened the whole uh, overturn the election can of worms, I want to ask you a bit more specifically and to elaborate a bit more on your take on President Trump's media appearances denouncing the election results in the early days. As we know, uh, only it was only minutes after NBC projected Joe Biden to be the winner that Trump refused to accept the election results and said it was, quote, far from over, and of course immediately opened up those legal inquiries into attempting to overturn the election. So I want to ask, was this expected or unexpected for you? How did you feel about it? What did you think about it? And also, by extension, did you expect that high-ranking Republicans in Congress would, some of them tacitly but others explicitly, condone the president's refusal to concede? Yeah, all really good questions. So first, just in terms of it being expected or not, uh, you know, clearly Trump was saying from, I don't know, like April, May of the election year, he was saying the only way I can lose is if the election is stolen from me. So he was telegraphing early on that this was going to be his strategy that if he lost, he was going to claim that he won. And he was going to push that hard and say that it was voter fraud. And he was going to try to go to court to overturn the results of the election. So, so we knew that from you know, six months before election day, that Donald Trump was going to be doing this. And indeed, he didn't wait until the election was called for Joe Biden when he started making these claims you know, after the election, on election night. He was saying the election was being stolen and that, you know, that he was going to win and that it was a landslide that he was winning by. And so that was a very consistent kind of message from Trump that the election was being stolen from him. Um, but I, I think, you know, what played out in court then, though, was that there was no factual basis for any of these claims, that there were 60 different court cases that, that Donald Trump uh, was party to. And there was only one involving some procedural matter, not even on the, the factual basis of fraud, that they actually won a favorable verdict. Uh, on the other 60-some cases, they, they lost. And in some cases, with scathing kind of, of commentary from the judges, including many uh, Trump appointees. And so these were you know, Democratic-appointed and Republican-appointed judges who were basically tossing these cases out because they had no factual basis at all. And so to you know, get to your other question then about the role played by other Republican leaders, and, and there I think they do bear a lot of responsibility for not pulling the plug on this sooner, you know, because it was pretty obvious pretty early on that there was nothing to this, that you know, Joe Biden had won the election. It was, again, really close in some of those states, um, but the results have been certified there had recounts, um, and that's fine. In close elections, you, know, you should have a recount. But once those recounts were done, it was clear that Joe Biden won. At that point, the Republican leadership should have said, okay, it's over. And so I think by about, I would say, early December, um, the recounts were, were done in all the states. And at that point, it would have been good 
you know, for the Republican leadership of the House and Senate to basically say, OK, we're done. Let's move on. But they didn't. They waited. And as we, we saw on January 6th, we saw the, the consequences of that. Well, to ask a quick follow up on that, why didn't the Republican leadership work to quickly consolidate Republican legislatures into a consolidated, unified voice affirming the election results? And what do you think this continual split between certain members of the Republican Party in the legislature who believe in the election results and others who are still convinced that the election was stolen or rigged or whatever going to mean for the party in the country? I think there there are, as you sort of suggest in the question, two, two camps here. There are the one group of Republicans who are simply being strategic, you know, trying to, you know, humor Trump to, yeah, like there was that one famous quote from one of the White House staffers, like, you know, what can the harm be? Like, let's just, you know, let's go along with it. You know, we, we know that Biden won, but let it play out. No big deal. Uh, and for those people, they knew, I think, from very early on, if not by the end of election week, certainly by a week or two after that, that Joe Biden was, was our president. And they were doing it to to placate Trump, to humor Trump, and also I think to to keep that the Trump base of voters also feeling like the party was fighting the the good fight to try to do everything they could do to, as they said over and over and over again, make sure that every ballot vote was counted. So that was the mantra I think of of those folks who were just kind of going through the motions. I think they knew that ultimately that it was going to play out the way it did. And I definitely put Mitch McConnell in this camp. I mean, he, he knew like pretty early on that this is the way it's going to go. And, and now he finally is, is saying pretty you know, strongly that, yeah, Joe Biden did win the presidency. Um, and then you do have the other group, though, of some people who, especially in the House, and there are a few senators as well, including probably our Senator Ron Johnson, uh, who firmly believes still that the, the election was was stolen. Um, and, you know, for those folks, it's, it's harder to know how they will ever be convinced otherwise. I think what it's going to take is uh, enough of the Republican leadership. You know, Kevin McCarthy has started to, to show some signs of this, at least recognizing, you know, came to the, the inauguration anyway. And so I think if you have enough of the Republican leaders, Liz Cheney probably in the House has been the, the most vocal on this score. Um, but you'll need more of that, I think, to, if not convince that faction of the Republican Party, at least marginalize them and at least you know, make it clear that this is not what the Republican Party stands for. The Republican Party is sort of still based in objective reality, recognizing that that Biden won the presidency. If the Republicans had controlled the House as well, would Trump have been able to steal the election? Uh, given everything else exactly like it was, like with with this the states that went for, uh, I. I don't think so. I because now I, I think that had it come down to like one state, had it been like just Georgia was the margin, and you know then and the Republicans control the House, you know then you could maybe see it. But but given that it'd have to be three states overturned, and in each of those states you had either federal court or in the case of Wisconsin the state Supreme Court saying that nope, yeah Biden was the winner, you know I don't i'm not even for so for three states i don't think it would have happened even if they would have controlled the house for one state it would have been 
certainly more possible, but even then, I'm not convinced. Kind of moving on, Professor, you know, as part of the department and as a professor here at the university, objectivity is obviously one of the things that you strive for in your teaching, especially when it comes to politics and heated politics like we live in right now. In the time after the election, with an eye on objectivity, how would you explain to students the president's litigation, the president's communications? For So if I had a student who believed the election was stolen and was convinced that was true, how would I address that in class? So yeah, I would basically you know tell them to just look at the the court record in terms of the objective evidence that had to be presented under oath in federal court and state court uh that you know when it wasn't just tweeting about something and making a speech about something you know you actually have to prove with factual evidence uh your your case in court they weren't able to do that and so i think that you know, shows, you know, what the objective reality was. So it's, so it's that ob- objective kind of evidence that had to be presented in court and, you know, they weren't able to ever do that. And so that's the evidence I would point to, to a skeptic who still believed that the election was stolen from Donald Trump is to say, you know, well, there is no factual record to support that. And speaking of the difference between factual records and maybe falsified records, one major place where it seemed like a lot of people who were misinformed about these issues and thus leading to their participation in this insurrection and election conspiracy was social media and various social media sites. And after the insurrection at the Capitol, social media kind of in general, did some reflecting on its role in fomenting misinformation and providing a space for right-wing extremists to plan potential future attacks online and their role in creating, in part, or at least providing a, a platform for the organization for the attack on the Capitol. And since then, we've seen social media companies take considerable steps to try and and curb this, including notoriously the banning of Donald Trump from Twitter, but a lot of other steps as well. I'd like to ask you what you make of all of this, and including the role of social media in our political and informational spheres right now, and perhaps how to defuse some of the widespread contentions that are still spreading on social media that the election was stolen. Yeah, no, this is a, a huge problem in terms of how to get the genie back in the bottle, basically, in, in terms of trying to restore some sense of objective reality when, as you say, you know, in social media platforms especially, there are these alternative realities out there where, you know, QAnon people, you know, do believe that, the government's being run by a bunch of pedophiles who are running these child sex rings. And, you know, it's just crazy, just ludicrous stuff that, that people do believe. And so social media companies like, like Twitter, Facebook, but, but others as well are trying to get more of a handle on this now. And as you note, um, are taking concrete steps to, to try to make it, at least harder for these kinds of conspiracy theories that are potentially, you know, dangerous and, and violent, as we saw on January 6th, um, to, you know, make it so it's, it's less likely they'll be able to uh, have that, that kind of uh, violent 
you know, impact on, on the country. And whether or not they can be successful in that still remains to be seen. I mean, I think it, it, it has helped. The steps they've taken seem to have helped. I mean, inauguration, you know, a lot of people were really concerned about the potential for violence, not just in Washington, D.C., but all 50 state capitals were on kind of high alert, you know, for the whole last week. And it was partly due to the substantial show of force, I think, with, uh, you know, having the National Guard out in not just D.C., but other state capitals as well, helped prevent that from happening. But there were steps taken by not just the social media platforms like, like Twitter and Facebook, but even things like Airbnb. Like they, they canceled the, the reservations for like every out-of-town person who had made a reservation to go to D.C. during inauguration, just as a preventative measure to say, okay, we have enough evidence that there are a lot of extremist groups that you know, appear to be wanting to come to Washington that week. We're just not going to let that happen, you know, on our platform. And so they just basically shut that down. And so those are pretty extreme steps that, you know, are, you know, I, I think in, at least in the case of preparation for the inauguration were, were well-founded, but I think there is going to have to be even more, you know, aggressive uh, action taken to, to try to, to make sure that, you, you don't see this kind of toxicity just spread online. That is an excellent point. And, you know, it's a new day. To, at the time we're recording this, it is Joe Biden's first full day in office. After a relatively hitch-free inauguration day, what is your take, you know, on the kind of state of democracy as it is right now? Because just like you said, you know, we've been worried about threats of domestic terrorism ever since the insurrection at the Capitol. And now that we're in this, uh, the beginning of this new era, I guess, for America, how, what, what is your take on the state of democracy? The guardrails held. That's the, you know, I, I think that to me, that's the, the really positive takeaway here is that it was an extreme test of our system of checks and balances, but the system ended up working and primarily the courts. I mean, the courts really were that guardrail to have those 60 cases in state and federal courts and have a unanimous verdict from those those courts saying, look, Joe Biden won this election. And so that's something that, you know, really, I think should help restore confidence in the strength of our, our democracy and the strength of our political system is that the guardrails were severely tested and and they they stood up to the, the test. And um, not to say that, you know, our, our democracy is completely healthy and certainly the discussion we just had about sort of extremist views on social media and how that spilled over to the, you know, the insurrection in the state capital uh, in the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. I mean, clearly that's not the kind of thing that would happen in a completely healthy democracy. Uh, but the fact that we had those extreme tests and we came through it and we had, you know, a very successful inauguration day, like you say, it went off without a hitch and, Everything seems to be, you know, working smoothly enough, uh, you know, at this at this time. And to kind of pivot a little bit, we've been talking a lot about the president, but I'd like to kind of, if you know, Trump is the reality TV star, I'd like to take a minute to talk about some of the uh, supporting cast members and maybe get your get a chance to just kind of maybe touch on them one more time before we totally shift over into the Biden admin. So. I'd like to get your take on, say, how Mike Pence and Mitch McConnell and McCarthy hand, uh, handled last week, because we know that 
Pence attended the inauguration, accepted the election results. Um, McConnell has been kind of telegraphing a little bit that he might be open to impeachment processes. McCarthy voted against impeachment, but then did levy a little bit of responsibility against the president for uh, inciting the insurrection at the Capitol. Do you think that this is that 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 they, these people are handling it well? Do you think that this is an enough conciliation for the moment? Or do you think that this is too little too late and that maybe these people are trying to jump off of the Trump Titanic after it's already capsized and split in half? So what is just your take on how some of these supporting cast members handled last week and maybe how it will impact their political future? Yeah, well, the the last question is the hardest one to answer still right now, because that that really depends on how this split within the Republican Party plays out. I mean, are the, the Trump supporters going to, to win this this split? And or is it going to be the, you know, McConnell's and Pence's and McCarthy's who, you know, and Liz Cheney, you know, be able to say, no, we're going to change the Republican Party back to what it was, and we're going to get rid of the influence of Donald Trump. And so in terms of the impact on their political careers, that uh, you have to know how that fight's going to play out until you can before you can answer that question. The other question I think is is easier to to talk about, uh, and that is like how do we assess the positions now of those people who finally have stood up? to Donald Trump, like Pence, McConnell, McCarthy, Cheney, uh, and a handful of others, you know, is it too little too late? Or should we embrace this as the first step to some kind of reconciliation and unity that President Biden has been calling for now uh, for the last couple of days? Um, And my view is that obviously it would have been better had they spoke out earlier, like let's say December, like I said, you know, at that point, the recounts were done. I think the responsible thing for the leadership would have been at that point to embrace the Biden presidency. They didn't do that, obviously, but um, I still think that what they did on both on December 6th with Mike Pence and Mitch McConnell uh, basically holding that vote after the insurrection was, uh, I think, a real act of courage you know, from the, the leadership to, to say we're not going to you know, let these you know, rioters win. We're going to show that democracy is stronger than this, and we're going to get back to work, and we're going to give Joe Biden his electoral votes that he deserves. And you know, Mitch McConnell's speech on, on that Wednesday night uh, was, was pretty inspiring in terms of saying, look, we, we need to, to, to you know, ratify this election, and, and we rec- have to recognize that Joe Biden is the winner, and we need to do the work now. And we can't let the uh, the rioters, you know, stand in our way. And so, while you know, I think if you're being super critical of the Republican leadership, you can definitely reach the conclusion it was too little, too late. But I think that this is something that people who really are eager for the kind of unity that President Biden is calling for, that would like to see more bipartisan work uh, on substantive legislation that we're going to really need over the next uh, you know, year or so should embrace this uh, late move by those Republican leaders to finally sort of recognize what needs to be done. And in doing so, could potentially then encourage McConnell to take that next step of backing the conviction of Donald Trump in the impeachment trial. And as you you noted, you know, he's been hinting 
you know, that he's kind of maybe leaning in that direction. I don't know if he's going to be willing to take that, that next, you know, final step, but it's possible he might because Mitch McConnell is, is always been more of a party person than a Trump person. Like for him, you know, protecting the Republican party and especially the Republican party in the Senate is his number one objective, I think. Uh, and it's not, he's never been like a, a big, you know, a Trump loyalist. And so if he thinks that he can save the Republican party in the Senate by finally ridding uh, the Republican party of Trump, you know, he, he may be willing to do that. I, it's you know, kind of 50, 50 right now, which, which way he's going to go. So I watched Jen Psaki, the new press secretary's first press conference yesterday, and all of the reporters asking her questions mentioned exactly what you mentioned um, about unity and about healing. They all want to know what Joe Biden is actually going to do to, you know, unite and heal the country. What are some things, in your opinion, that Joe Biden can do to, you know, quote unquote, unite the country and heal it, whatever that means? Well, unfortunately, I think the first step has to be the Republican Party deciding which direction it wants to go first. So if you still have you know, two thirds of Republicans saying that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president, and if you still have 136 House members in the Republican Party, you know, basically saying that Joe Biden's not the legitimate president, you know, it's going to be really hard, indeed impossible for Joe Biden to unify the country. So I think that that first step has to be for the Republican Party to at least recognize that Joe Biden is a legitimate president. Uh, once that happens, you know, then the process of unifying the, the real work of doing that can, can start to happen. And what I think that, that Biden should do is to try to focus on areas of legislation where the, the parties can work together. And I would point to, to two uh, would be, being the most important, the COVID response and trying to get the pandemic under control, including a more effective vaccine rollout. That's something that everyone should be able to get behind. Um, and so I would put a, a lot of attention on that, a lot of effort there. And then second, the economy. Um, to have another you know, serious uh, COVID relief bill to try to make sure the economy doesn't uh, head back into a recession. And those are two areas where I think you should be able to get pretty good bipartisan work. Um, throw in there maybe infrastructure as another you know, third area as well. And I think that's, that's the way to try to unify the country is to, to focus on things, the, the real problems we face that both parties can can work together to solve. To ask kind of a quick follow-up on that, do you think that the Republican Party is actually incentivized right now to heal the nation in that way? Like, the reason I ask is because providing those kind of deliverables might not necessarily seem like something they want to hand to Democratic President Biden. And additionally, it seems like the strategy for this election most definitely, and back in 2016 as well, has been focused around motivating their base voters via outrage rather than trying to unify or heal a divided nation. So given that kind of strategy and then admittedly my kind of assumption on how a lot of Americans perceive political changes in the United States – 
Do you think that they actually have those incentives in place to work towards this kind of healing strategy? Well, I think it goes back to the earlier discussion we had about the split within the Republican Party. I think the the, the folks who are the, the true Trump believers who believe the election was stolen from Donald Trump, they're, they're not going to get on board with any kind of, of bipartisan agenda. Clearly, they're going to just fight for the, the midterms to try to maximize Republican gains there get behind whoever they're going to get behind for president in 2024 and everything they can do to make life miserable for Joe Biden will be the goal of, of that wing of the Republican party for sure. Uh, because it's all about, uh, you know, tarnishing your opponent and trying to you know make your own chances in the upcoming election stronger. So yes, absolutely. For that group of Republicans, um, they have the incentive to, to not work with the president and to, to try to you know, make life hard for for Joe Biden and, and the Democrats, but I think you know, given the stakes of, of what is involved here, the fact that four hundred thousand Americans now have died from COVID, um, you know, this is something that it doesn't just affect Democrats. It doesn't just affect blue states, as we've seen. You know, early early on in the pandemic, it was New York. It was a lot of the, the blue states that, that did have the disproportionate number of cases and deaths. Well, now it's it's affected the entire country. Texas right now is the hot spot uh, in the country uh, once again. And, and so this is something I think that Democrats and Republicans do have a huge incentive to try to, to resolve and uh, to get on top of the pandemic as quickly as possible. And the vaccine rollout, again, is something that every American should be able to get behind. And so there, I think Joe Biden should be able to find enough Republicans who do want to work together, at least on that problem, if nothing else. Mm, thank you. To pivot a little bit and kind of step on a bit of a different topic, one thing that I am very, very curious about, will the media continue to cover Trump? Has Donald Trump graced his last TV screen, or do you think that uh, we haven't seen the last of him just yet? Well, I think pretty clearly we will be seeing plenty of Donald Trump. Um, I I think that he is not going to go quietly. I think that there's a, a good chance he will either uh, you know, form his own new uh, you know, media uh, sort of outlets for his, his message. If he's been kicked off Twitter, he'll be able to find other ways of, of having his voice heard. There's no, no doubt about that. You know, there's even been some talk of him trying to form a, a new party. Uh, if he were to do that, that would be another you know, platform for him uh, to be able to, to gain more political attention. So I think there's, there's little doubt that we have not seen the, the last of Donald Trump. On the other hand, I think he will have a diminished voice, uh, no doubt, that he, especially if McConnell takes that step of actually convicting, you know, getting enough Republicans behind convicting him in the Senate, um, that would send a strong signal that we don't want Donald Trump in the Republican Party anymore if McConnell was able to, to actually do that. Um, short of conviction in the Senate, you know, then I think Trump will continue to have more of an impact on the, on the party. Um, and of course, then the, the final part of the impeachment trial is that separate vote to ban him ever from running for office again, for federal office. And so if they do take that step, which only requires a majority vote rather than two thirds, um, then you know, his, his role clearly will be uh, diminished because he can't run for president again. Um, and so, yes, we still will hear plenty about Donald Trump, but I think the voice will be somewhat diminished 
uh, from obviously from what it was as, as president. As a quick follow up to that, I'd like to ask about the intersection between Trump's post presidency media presence and the upcoming impeachment trial. As we know, Donald Trump has now been impeached again in the House of Representatives, and it will move to the Senate for a trial, despite the fact that he's out of office. But even though the Democrats now control the Senate as a result of the Georgia election, an impeachment trial still requires a two-thirds majority vote in the Senate to remove the office holder from office, which means that Democrats are going to have to be able to convince a solid number of Republicans to switch over and vote for removal. Resultantly, I think it's most definitely an open question if he will or won't be removed from office as a result of the Senate vote. But one thing that I think is certain is that he'll try and use this second impeachment to regain and build back some of that media presence and continue to whip up some of his followers and supporters. So I'd like to ask you about how you think Donald Trump will appear or use the media during his second impeachment trial, and also what you think the cost-benefit analysis of this decision might be, where there's a chance that the Senate will vote to remove Donald Trump, but there's a certainty he will use this trial to wrestle the media limelight back on him. It certainly will put him back in the news again, you know, in on the, the front page for however many weeks it, it takes. Uh, but the, the real consequences of conviction and the ban on running for office, I mean, that's real. I mean, so that's a tangible kind of thing that will absolutely prevent him from having the kind of impact he would otherwise have. So if they fail to convict and prevent him from running for office, then he can dangle out that you know, that, that threat of, uh, well, promise or threat, depending on, you know, what your perspective is, of running for office again, running for president again in 2024. And so I think that that's why McConnell would potentially go ahead with this, is that really is the only way to, to rid Trump, uh, you know, kick him out of the party, is to take that step of banning him from running for office. It would be controversial, no doubt. And there's also no doubt that Trump would use that as a a rallying cry, you know, to try to you know, rebuild his base. But the other thing we haven't talked about yet that also is absolutely going to happen over the next 12 months to two years are all of the other potential legal liabilities that, that Trump is, is facing, not only from the New York state prosecutor, but now potentially from the Fulton County district attorney about the election interference and the fact that Financially, Trump is in some pretty serious trouble over the next couple of years. He has $410 million in loans coming due. And Deutsche Bank has already pulled the plug on him, saying they're they're not going to bankroll him anymore. They've been the biggest you know, bank of lending him money these days. And so it's going to be harder for him to, to borrow that money. Now, some people are saying he'll still be able to find someone willing to lend him that money, but it's it's going to be a, a tough road, I think, for the Trumps financially, that, you know, the word already in terms of the, the revenue for his properties is down something like 30% this last year. And, you know, they're going to have some pretty serious financial troubles, uh, in addition to these legal troubles. And so I think, you know, Trump will be preoccupied with other things, in addition to uh, the possibility of him you know, trying to reestablish himself politically. Absolutely. Whatever happens in his trial, obviously his legacy will remain. And that legacy has 
found its way into freshmen, Congress people, you know, all the way to seasoned senators. What does, you know, this this Trumpism, I guess, now touted by Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene in the House, Josh Hawley and Senator Cruz in the Senate, what happens to this ideology now that there is not this huge speaker spewing all the the information that they take and redistribute. What happens now? Yeah, well, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because I think you will see a battle going on within the Republican Party, not only over Donald Trump, which we've been talking about, but also over the ideas that he espoused. That you know, the especially on things like immigration and trade and our position in the world. Uh, vis-a-vis our, our allies, you know, all you know, taking positions that had not been consistent with the positions of the Republican Party before him. And so this is a battle that will will play out over the next couple of years to see which way the party goes. Will it go back more to the, the roots of you know John McCain, Mitt Romney, uh, the George Bushes, Ronald Reagan, or is it going to go continue to go more in the direction that Donald Trump laid out uh, over the last four years. And that's going to be an internal battle that we'll see played out in Republican primaries. We'll see played out, you know, in the buildup to the 2024 presidential election. Uh, and it's really an open question right now in terms of, you know, which wing of the Republican party will become dominant. And there's just been so much news since the last time we talked There's just been so many major stories that we haven't even talked today yet about the fact that the Democrats have won the Senate now as well, or at least have that very narrow 50-50 split, which will, of course, be split by uh, Vice President Harris in the case of a tie. So I want to ask, what is the significance of this for the Biden administration and America in general? How different do you think these first two years, at least, of the Biden presidency are going to be as opposed to if the Democrats didn't control the Senate? Well, the biggest thing clearly is with the uh, court nominations, cabinet nominations, all of the presidential nominations that are are not subject to the filibuster. And so there's where the bare majority of 51 can have the the Democrats prevail. Uh, Anything other than that, however, still will require 60 votes because of the filibuster. And so that gives a a tremendous amount of power to the the moderates in the the Senate. So Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, Ben Sass, Joe Manchin, those are the folks now that are are going to really be in the driver's seat in terms of policy. Now, there's there's some policies still can get done through reconciliation, which is a uh, on, on budgetary matters, you can sometimes use reconciliation to get things through, and that's simple majority vote. But that is a fairly narrow range of things, like immigration reform, for example, can't be done through reconciliation. Uh, and so the Biden agenda is going to require a lot of Republicans in order to to get things passed. And so the 50-50 majority in the Senate isn't like having a narrow majority in the House. In the House, it's a majoritarian institution. Like you can get a lot done with a narrow majority and with Nancy Pelosi, you know, with her her small single digit majority she has, will still be a strong speaker. They'll still be able to get quite a lot done in the House. But the the Senate, I think, is going to, even with that 
that narrow 51 uh, or 50, 50 split with the uh, vice president Harris breaking the tie is not the same kind of power that comes with that, that would be true in the house because of the filibuster. Now, again, the, the big difference is the court nominations. That's where, you know, president Trump had a huge impact on the federal courts. Uh, the number of appeals court nominees he had, you know, more in four years than than Barack Obama had in like six years, uh, and almost as much as Obama had in eight years. And so that's something that you know could, uh, you know, at least start to reverse some of those changes on the federal courts. As we're getting close to the end of our time. You know, obviously, we are a podcast from the political science department, so it's fitting to talk to students. What is your advice to students that would help them, you know, rebuild and preserve our political process that is just so battered right now? What is it? What is your advice to students on that? Yeah, so I I think to to really pay attention to what President Biden said yesterday in his inauguration message about the strength of our democracy, but about the the need for trying to bring the country together. Um, and that's one thing that, that each of us can do in our political conversations with friends is to, to try to, to be open to different perspectives, try to understand where people are coming from who we may disagree with, and, and try as much as possible you know, to find some common ground, find things that, you know, that, that maybe you can, if you don't uh, agree on sort of every policy position, at least maybe can agree on uh, a goal, on an end that you're striving for. And so having those sort of civil discussions uh, about politics that, that try to find common ground, I think is probably the, the most important thing that we all can do as we try to to heal our our democracy, I think that's I think that's really really great advice and 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 reassuring in a way to know that there's just things that we can do just as students just to help us all move forward. So, but to kind of continue this little hopeful note, I want to close out today by just asking you, what are you hopeful about these days? What maybe is maybe inspiring to you, or you know, it takes a it takes a little bit of the existential weight off of your shoulders. Yeah, so I think the the thing I take the the most hope from is the fact that our political system was so severely tested over these last two months, and it stood up to that test. You know, first with the federal courts and the state courts, with the sixty different court cases uh, that they stood up for. You know the legitimacy of Joe Biden's election and and uh, and made those rulings consistently across all of the states that they were tried in. And so that's a really sort of strong validation of the fact that our system of checks and balances is working. And then on the you know the night of January 6th, you know after the insurrection at the US Capitol, you know to have the House and Senate come back and to do the business that they were that they set out to do, uh, you know, to count the, the electoral votes for Joe Biden and to to not sort of stand down to the, the rioters. Uh, that also was a really inspiring thing, I think, for our political leaders to, to do, to show the, the strength and resilience of our democracy, you know, when it had been tested in, in such an extreme way. Uh, and so that also gives me gives me great hope. Uh, and then I think also the just the, the the message from the inauguration yesterday of you know we're all in this together as Americans and Joe Biden reassuring us that 
he's going to be the president for all Americans, not just for the people who voted for him. That's the kind of message I think that we need to hear. And that's what it's going to take to help move our country forward. That's all really great stuff. Thank you for sharing with us. And okay. uh, Dr. Cannon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Always, always really exciting to have you. And uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime soon. All right. Good to see you. Take care. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.